People want to believe. We tell each other, just read the Bible. But what happens when it just isn't easy to understand? This is No God. You're listening to the No God Podcast. Glad that you're with us today. I'm Tony Kafka, uh, sharing uh, this time together with uh, my wife, Sandy. Hi. And uh, our friend, Scott Stocking. Um, Scott, glad you're here today. Thank you. Glad, glad to be here. Um, invited Scott because uh, he and I have had lots of conversations about this topic for today and appreciate his, his work and some technical expertise that he has in this area that will help us. We know that from the last uh, podcast that we talked about uh, the role of women in leadership in the New Testament, in churches in the first century. And we saw in that podcast, listened in that podcast about how uh, there were women that were leading. They were, they were prophets, prophetesses, sometimes it'll say. They were other kinds of leaders. They were uh, exercising uh, care for people. They were serving uh, they were serving on uh, teams with uh, the Apostle Paul, and they were teaching, uh, and they were praying in public, and all these kinds of things. And so we really see this positive aspect that God gifts women in leadership. But there are passages that seem to restrict and actually do restrict women under certain circumstances for certain kinds of, in certain kinds of ways. And I think that one of the things that Scott can do with us today is to share with us uh, the context and also some of the uh, the interpretive and the translation aspects of this. I might just mention to people that Scott has a blog. We'll mention that later. And uh, Scott has some educational credentials that I don't have, but uh, he has a lot of background in New Testament Greek, and which is going to be one of the primary tools that we're going to be talking about uh, today. So. I guess I want to ask, throw it out to Sandy and Scott both and just talk about for a moment before we get into this is in churches that we've been in, whether it was churches we grew up in or whether we've been a part of in other ways, um, where does this kind of come into play? Where do these restrictive passages come into play as far as the life of the church in your own experience? And I know Sandy and I talked about this some, so Sandy, I know you grew up in church. Uh, what would you say concerning women in leadership in your, your experience? Well, they just weren't. They weren't in leadership. It was, they taught Sunday school classes. Um, but there were many that had plenty of influence on their older husbands and what happened in the church. And, um, yeah, but I know they never, they didn't teach any adult classes. And I guess I never thought about women being anything but little kid teachers. So there was no aspiration before either the women or even girls that, leadership was a possibility in a church not that i noticed but you know but then when i um when we moved to oklahoma to the children's home um and i mentioned last week mrs Gruber, you know she i know taught um older boys and stuff but that was the, not the norm even there it was still where the men did the teaching of the adult women and the older boys and right well, my experience in that I grew up or had a couple of years experience in a in a evangelical Christian church setting as an older high school kid. And uh, there weren't women that were in official leadership capacities, except that they were worship leaders. And so they were leading that in the church. They were leading uh, high school, Sunday school class. So teaching 
young men, boys, depends on who's defining that group of people. <laughs> there were women that were choir directors, and so they were directing men mm-hmm. in that situation. But it was not considered like an official leadership, biblical leadership position. And so it wasn't, at least as far as my experience was, it wasn't right. an issue. And for the most part, in my early years as a, and a, a pastor, um, women in leadership was not something that anybody was interested in seeing happening. In fact, there was a lot of like just negative um, comments, sarcastic comments that were made about the occasional churches that might have a woman that was in some position of leadership, whether it was a minister, pastor, or a board member or whatever. And it was always dealt with in kind of a negative connotation. Mm-hmm. Um, Scott, did you have any particular experiences that would have made you think yes or no on women leadership as a younger person? I grew up in the Presbyterian Church, actually, and so I have always experienced, at least in that context, women in leadership. There were some that were elders, some that were trustees, uh, definitely some that were deacons. Um, We even, I think for a time, had a female associate pastor in the church, so that has never been a problem for me. Now, when I when I actually gave my life to Christ and got in, started getting involved in a Bible study group, I got involved with a rather fundamentalist group, and they had kind of the the no woman leadership position, and that was a little hard for me to swallow. And so I was always looking at Scripture to see. You know, well, wait a minute. Here, you know, you got Deborah in the Old Testament, mm-hmm. and you have several other examples in the New Testament, and so that, that that didn't jive with me, and I wasn't really comfortable with that. So, it was one Would reason. Would you voice that to the yeah people? Oh, okay. Yeah, I I didn't wasn't shy about that. It's like. So did that drive any of your educational interests uh, at the college level or or graduate level? Um. I went to the University of Nebraska, so I had uh, pretty liberal exposure there. And uh, it was, wasn't until I got to seminary. I had actually gone to seminary with the idea I might be a counselor and fell in love with biblical languages. And so my first year of seminary, I took Greek and Hebrew together, which is oh, wow. <laughs> All right. probably not a good decision. Probably wouldn't do that again. Um but uh, fell in love with the languages and uh, really started to, to dive in to, to the different things in Scripture and see how um, getting back to the original context, original author's intent, uh, really opened up Scripture to me, especially right. on this issue. Right. Well, so that is part of what brings <clears throat> us to this uh, podcast. And I know for myself, I have kind of like a, a basic skill with New Testament Greek. And you and I have had conversations about a lot of different topics through the years. And more recently, um, we've talked uh, some about these passages that are passages that indicate some type of of a teaching that would make it appear that maybe women shouldn't be leading or shouldn't be teaching, or <clears throat> that there's a different, there's a restricted role for women. And so there's a few passages. First Corinthians 14 has one of those. There's, some, there's a mention in 1 Corinthians 11 that has a type of restriction. But then there's also 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Timothy 3 that often is a place that people feel like there are statements of restriction that 
compel us to not allow women to lead in churches. And so that's really where mm-hmm. we want to go. And so I'd kind of like to just kind of toss that to you and kind of just give us a run into First Timothy and how this uh, topic uh, comes at us. Okay. Well, the the key passage to focus on, for me anyway, is First Timothy 2 and 3. And this is where kind of one of the most difficult verses is, especially in verse uh, verses 11 and 12. Um, but one, one of the things that I learned as I was going through uh, my, my seminary studies is that uh, structure is, is everything mm-hmm. in, in a scriptural right. passage. And to see how the author has put his ideas together uh, is a, has been really revealing because these men who wrote the scriptures, they were not ignorant. They knew the writing style of the day. And so they would, and they were probably well-read too. Paul gives every indication that he was well-read. And Mm -hmm. so he would write in the same way he saw other, other authors writing. And so there's uh, some oratorical and uh, structural things that are going on in Paul's letters that the casual reader doesn't always see. And so, you know, when we look at First Timothy 2, for example, you start in, uh, just kind of go through starting at verse 1. Uh, verses 1 through 7, Paul's giving a general exhortation to all men and women. Uh, here, just prayer. In verse 2, he talks about, um, you know, praying for kings and those in authority that way we may live peaceful and quiet lives. The the word quiet there is the same word that's used later on for the women. And so kind of 11. setting a stage of yeah. at least the flow of what Paul's talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so he's going to return to that. And he he talks about, um, you know, praying for those in authority. And he wants the men lifting up holy hands. And uh, by, by talking about uh, peaceful and quiet lives... Uh, I see in that kind of a contrast with with Genesis three seventeen through nineteen, and that may some may see that as a bit of a stretch. But when you have the reference to Genesis uh, three sixteen at the end, where it talks about women and childbirth, uh, it seems to make sense to me that Paul's saying we want to live peaceful and quiet lives, not the painful toil that comes from the curse. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of a balancing act there. That and so the curse, meaning the curse that God gave in the garden after the sin mm-hmm. and the Adam results, Eve, the right. consequences that God uh, spoke to Adam and Eve. Right. Yeah. Right. And so verses 3 and 4, he wants all men to be saved. And again, there's that language connection with verse 15 mm-hmm. about women being saved. And then Paul says that, excuse me, Jesus is the mediator, uh, the ransom, and our Savior. And then in verse 7, Paul makes it very clear, I'm the one that has the authority to teach. Mm -hmm. Christ has given me authority to teach. And he says, I'm a true and faithful teacher to the Gentiles. So Paul's establishing his authority in this situation and saying, I'm here to teach, 
and I'm here to show you the proper way. Right, so, which okay. is the point of that, that section. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. So, and then we go on into verse 8, and here we get to the, the second part of it where he, he starts to give the general instructions to the men and the women. So in verse 8, he's teaching, he wants uh, men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands. And then he wants the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety and, and uh, those uh, no qualifications there. <laughs> yeah, no fancy <laughs> hairstyles. Yeah. Um, at least not, uh, for that time. not for that time anyway. So, And then we get to verses 11 and 12. And this is where it gets kind of interesting. And if we look at the context, we see that there's, there's some contrast going on. And that it's probably, uh, there's some clues there that this is probably a uh, situational command that he's giving here. You mean like a command for something that's going on right something there? Something that's going okay. on right there, yeah. So do we want that read? Because Sandy could read that out loud for us. Yeah, why don't you go ahead and read, uh, read 11 and 12. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Okay. Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> and all the air goes out of the room. And, um, But notice that verse 11, Paul is giving sort of a positive command there. Mm -hmm. I want the women to, to learn in quietness and full submission. We've seen in other places, especially in the First Corinthians passage, that uh, people were just shouting out. Men and women were just shouting out in the assembly, and there was there was no order, there was no uh, nothing guiding that or uh, hindering that kind of behavior within the church. And it points out that then the unbeliever walks in and thinks this is a crazy place, right? Yeah, because of that chaos. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so Paul, I think, is saying here, I think he's probably seen the same thing going on in, I, I assume Timothy's in Ephesus here. Uh, he sees the same thing going on in Ephesus where the women are probably shouting out in the house churches. They're not uh, keeping silent. They're causing disruption. And the fact that women are learning at all is significant. Right. It's because a positive. Time, it's a right? positive, yes, because the Jews would not have allowed, allowed a woman to learn, first of all. Second of all, when the men were learning or the young men, the boys were learning from the rabbi, they certainly were not shouting out. They were sitting there quietly and in full submission to the rabbi. So what he's telling the women here is probably no different than what he would have told anyone else who's sitting and listening and learning about Scripture. So uh, I think that's, that's a key, a strong key here. And then that he goes on in verse 12 and says that I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over man. That's the NIV translation. Mm -hmm. um, that seems to indicate that, yes, there's something going on where the women are trying to teach or they're, they're shouting out or they're... Um, misbehaving, if you will. And the reason I say misbehaving is because that word for authority there, that's the only time that particular word for authority is used in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. And 
lexical studies have shown that it's probably not the kind of authority that we'd want anybody to have. That it is a usurping authority is how some, uh, some translators put it. That the woman is attempting to override the authority of her husband or the authority of the church leader or, or someone else's authority or not respecting it in some way. And so when Paul says, I don't permit the woman to teach or to have authority, um, he's, he's really saying, I don't want these women who are doing that to continue to be disruptive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and there's, a, there's an additional kind of technical thing going on that may be going on in the Greek here. Um, there's a, a construction in Greek called a hendiadis, which is where you have uh, two words connected by and, but they mean one thing. So it's possible here to translate this, I do not permit a woman to teach usurpingly. Okay, so like a compound okay. word. It's, kind it's of like a sort compound. of like a compound, yeah. Okay. Well, but as I'm listening to you say that, I think, you know, that is a, that is a temptation of a woman all the time <laughs> to take over or to be bossy and tell other people what to do. So no, I can actually... No, no, I've never, never yeah, right. seen that. I mean, I can, <laughs> I mean, there's even times in church now where I'll punch Tony and say, rah, 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 about something, you know, that said, but, you know, maybe then they, they weren't sitting by their husbands, yeah. right? Wasn't that the custom? It, they it, were... They were sitting on separate sides. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, they'd be yelling mm-hmm. over at their husband. So I can just say, 1 Timothy 2.12, 1 Timothy 2.12. Oh, you think? <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, that makes sense um, to me. Yeah, and and so when I when I look at it that way, and, and I'm, I'm fairly confident I've recaptured Paul's intent here. And so, to me, that is not a general prohibition against women teaching or leading in the church. It is, in fact, just an attempt to quell a, a disruptive situation and to try and bring some order to it. And then uh, in, in order to bring more order to that then, Paul goes on into chapter 3. Right. Let me pause just a yeah. second there because I'm, what I'm thinking about is that for some people, some believers... Christians then say, well, then this is a determining text that women can't have this this uh, taking authority thing and negating, or at least negating to a degree, the observation that there were women leading in the New Testament churches, Rome or um, Corinth and so forth. And so we've talked in our No God podcast way back in the past about how you can't take a a clear general statement or a kind of a universal statement and then negate it with a negation that's about a specific situation. So this is an interpretive principle that people can disagree with, Mm -hmm. but it's still, those two things stand in opposition to each other in statements, and so somehow they have to be reconciled as biblical truth. Yeah. Did you have something to say, Sandy? Well, or? I'm just looking at what comes up next. Oh, okay. You know, that's always really confused me about the childbearing thing. Okay, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, and uh, just to to kind of bring chapter two to a close there, uh, with the account of the creation narrative and Adam being Ford and first and then Eve, it it does kind of set the 
set the stage for God still considers the man in a headship role, right. mm-hmm. but not in a authoritarian type role or a uh, usurping role. I mean, Ephesians, when it talks about the roles of husbands and wives, husbands are commanded to love their wives. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and that's that's very important thing to bring in into this whole discussion, I think, that they're not to be uh, overlords. So right, and the Ephesians 5 passage that you're referencing, you know, they love their wives as they love themselves. They give, that they follow the model of Christ and actually give their own lives for the sake of their wives. So there's mm-hmm. this sacrificial, Jesus, and Jesus' words in the Gospels, you know, the Son of Man came to serve, not to be served, and right. to give his life as a ransom. And so the model of service as the primary mode of leadership has nothing to do with usurping on either gender, right. male or female. Mm-hmm. Right. And then to the statement about women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. I see that as more like an analogy rather than a a actual statement of salvation mechanics or well, something it, like it, that. It sounds a bit like a promise, or at least somebody could put it on a card and say, this is a promise. If, if a woman behaves this way, then she's going to be safe through childbearing, mm-hmm. which, again, we know many Christian women have died in childbirth, for yeah. example. Mm-hmm. I know this is one mm-hmm. of Sandy's favorite passages. As far as the... <laughs> it's like, what does this have to do with yeah. the whole thing? You know? like... yeah. yeah, I think it does for a lot of people. It feels a bit like it's kind of juxtaposed on this passage. But So what is the flow as, that you see here? Well, to go back to, to verse 2, where you're contrasting with the, the peaceful and quiet versus the painful toil, um, you know, here the, the women obviously are going to experience pain in childbirth. I don't think mm-hmm. the passage goes so far as to say women will never experience pain in childbirth. I've heard that, that taught before, and I... Yeah. I can't buy into no, that. that seem right. um, but I think um, I think there is a, uh, like I said, more of an analogy there that uh, you know, even though the women go through pain in childbirth, generally speaking, most mothers make it through that. You know, the, but the exceptions don't negate the the general so like principle, a prov- like a proverb in a sense. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Um, Any thoughts of why Paul included that statement in this stretch? <laughs> well, I like I said on verse two, the, the connection maybe to to Genesis three seventeen and nineteen okay. is if if that was sort of intentional or in the back of his mind anyway, then it becomes what we call an inclusio mm-hmm. in Greek, where where you have an idea that's stated at the beginning of a passage and then repeated at the end of the passage, and it kind of sets the boundaries for that passage and closes it off. Okay. And and then you know to treat that as a whole. Mm. So, okay. But, um, that, that's one of those passages that I, I can't claim any absolute knowledge on, and yeah. but that's my that's my best explanation for that. Yeah, yeah. so I'm, I'm with you on that. Well, I can <laughs> yeah. see that. Yeah. So, so we're ready for th- to move into that flow into chapter three, or yeah, okay. So, 
and the thing about the thing about Paul, if you really pay attention to any of his writings, he's always got things in groups of three. So in chapter two, he did the men and the women, and then he was speaking to the church leaders about what he mm-hmm. permitted. Yeah. So now in chapter three, he's going to be speaking specifically about church leaders. And as we'll see, he's got three groups okay. in mind. <clears throat> and there's some grammatical stuff going on there that, again, uh, the casual reader probably doesn't know it. And some translations have actually... Uh, muddied the issue by not translating the mm-hmm. same Greek word the same way every time it occurs. Sure. Okay. And so, and sometimes they will add in words that aren't there to... For understanding. To, to try and clarify. <laughs> and then they make it more better. So, um, but uh, does somebody want to, one of you want to read First uh, Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7? You want me to, Tony? Yeah. Here is a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace or into the devil's trap. Okay, thank you. So, it's pretty obvious in chapter 3 that he's talking about the office of overseer. Right. And... There's a few things to note about that. Uh, First of all, when he begins, in verse 1, he talks about aspires to be an overseer. That word there is talking about the office or the position. Mm -hmm. So there was, there does seem to have been an official position of overseer Mm -hmm. within the church. And then when you get into verse 2, it's interesting that, that particular word is singular, and it has the definite article with it. So it's the overseer, okay. which implies that there is one overseer. And my assumption is that that is in each house church that they have, oh. because they didn't have huge assemblies like we right. have at our church. They yes. they would meet in individual churches, and each, mm-hmm. each home would be there. Um, they would have an overseer and others who were responsible for various duties. Okay. So he's talking about one. The word also uh, is uh, episkopos. So it is basically used synonymously in some places with presbyteros, uh, both of which mean can mean elder as mm-hmm. well. Presbyteros leans more toward an older man who has uh, some respect in the community, whereas overseer has more of the, the function right. idea to it. And that's the King James translated that as bishop. Right. And I don't know how many other translations did that, but right. that's because they took that episkopos and actually just kind of transliterated it into an yeah. English word way centuries ago. Mm-hmm. And that's where that came from. Yeah. So overseer is an odd word, though. I mean, when we think about that, we don't even hardly use that word except in like, I don't know. 
some type of crazy industry or something. Yeah, yeah. Because that's a slave. I mean, in America, it sounds a bit like a slave word, you know, like overseer and slave right. kind mm-hmm. of thing. So that's a, NIV uses that. Yeah, and the NIV tends to be very rather consistent about using that right translation for that word. So, um, so anyway, there's there's a number of qualifications that are listed here. And it's it's fairly obvious in in that that Paul has in mind a male when mm-hmm. he's talking about this. Uh, for example, when he says faithful to his wife, it is the the literal phrase in Greek is a one woman man. Yeah, um, and that comes comes in. That's uh, helpful to know when we get to chapter five. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it talks about managing his family and things like that. Um, now, what's interesting is, and I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on the qualifications because we don't really have any arguments about those right. necessarily. What I want to get to is the structure here. So you come to verse 8, and Paul says, In the same way deacons are to be, and then he goes in and lists mm-hmm. the qualifications. Well, that word um, in the same way is a Greek word called, uh, it's pronounced hosautos. And if you do the word study on hosautos, what you find is when that's used to mean in the same way, and it's basically that's all it's used to mean in the scriptures, mm-hmm. it's, it's more than just similarity. When you look at the things that he's comparing there is a definite equality of status or uh, function or some some kind of deeper equality that goes beyond just what the word says. So it's trying to put things in whatever parallel or at least in complementary uh, equal value and standard. Right. Okay. So then you're saying like this is then is saying that this the deacon is equal to the overseer. They're equal to, equality. or they, he is functioning as the deacons are functioning as a leader as well. As well, so yeah. different roles. Yeah, but yeah. And and the other thing to note here in the Greek is that if you were to to look in an interlinear interlinear and try and find, uh, you know, what does it mean? Are to be worthy, or are to be? That verb isn't there in verse eight. It has to be borrowed from verse two, mm-hmm. because he's making a, a parallel statement here. Uh, so, it, so they assume the verb. Yeah, they assume okay. the verb, and we do that in English with some constructions of language. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So, literally in the Greek, verse two is it's necessary for the overseer to be. So, in the same way, it's necessary for the deacons to be. And you get to verse eleven. This is where it gets interesting. Mm-hmm. In the same way. Same word. The verb's not there. It has to be borrowed from verse 2. Mm-hmm. So in the same way, it's necessary that the women are to be worthy of respect. Now, if you've got an older NIV, or if you've got another translation, you might see their wives right. yeah. in that Problem is, the possessive pronoun isn't there in verse 11. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. No, there. 
let alone the in the same way construction that's going right. on here. Yeah. So in my mind then, in the same way, the women, whoever these women are, mm -hmm. they are part of the leadership of the church. And Paul's recognizing that here. And that kind of ties it back in then to chapter mm -hmm. 2, because he's saying, I'm not opposed to women being leaders or yeah. directing, you know, different ministries in the church, but they need to be, uh, you know, worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, mm -hmm. temperate, trustworthy in everything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so not malicious talkers, not, and worthy of respect, yeah. Um, yeah, so... And the, so this, I know this, this kind of pulls us a little bit out of the exegesis part, but it's like, you know what? The, in practical sense, in churches that don't allow women to be in leadership, this is the conversation that happens in leadership meetings. Mm -hmm. well, what are the women going to say? What do yeah. the women think about this? Well, what, what, there was a, no, there, there, we know of ones that would say, let's go home and talk to our wives first yes. and then come back and decide. And so there's this, this sense of balance that needs to happen anyhow, that mm -hmm. we need a voice coming from women who in the church are respected. Mm -hmm. And if they're respected, they're matching up to this flow of this passage. Yeah. 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 And I do want to say something about verse 12 too, because it returns to talking about deacons. Um, and again, it says a deacon must be a one man or a one woman man, faithful to his wife. And very similar qualities to what the elder has. Mm -hmm. Now, generally speaking, you look at those qualities of the elder um, or the deacon or the women. That's the way we all want to be, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we all want to be people of respect. We all want to manage our families well. We, those are mm -hmm. goals for every Christian. Right. They're not just exclusive to leadership. So, um, so is there any thought about why the why there's the the women kind of spaced in between the two comments, the two instructions about deacons. Yeah. Because that does throw some people into a thought of, well, then that's that's a that's not a separate group or something like right. that. Right. Yeah. Some people have said that because it's sandwiched between the two passages about deacons that perhaps it's talking about the deacons' wives only. But I, I come back to the fact that there's no possessive pronoun right. on woman. Mm -hmm. I went through the New Testament and I looked for references that were clearly to wives, married mm -hmm. women, women in a committed or betrothed relationship. And almost exclusively, those terms have either a possessive pronoun with them or they have a verb of possession like has. Mm -hmm. You know, if a man has a wife. Right. Um, uh -huh. Whereas the general references to women, you never find a, a possessive pronoun with them. Right. Okay. So yeah. in my mind, these women are, are not necessarily the wives of anybody mentioned here. They could mm -hmm. be. They could be. Mm -hmm. but, mm -hmm. but not necessarily. And just, I want to touch on uh, 1 Timothy 5 real quick. Because Paul goes on, this is a really short letter that he wrote right. to Timothy to help him guide in leadership in the Ephesian church that he was currently at. Mm -hmm. And so now we're going to move on to some other instructions about yeah. these individuals. And this is kind of where the rubber seems to be hitting the road mm -hmm. for Paul then. Uh, because in chapter 5, he talks about the widows. Mm 
verse, verse 3, give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. And then he goes on to talk about some of their qualifications. In verse 9, no widow may be put on the list of widows unless she's over 60, has been a one-man woman, mm-hmm. has been faithful to her husband. Right. Interesting choice of words there yes, that, yes. in my mind, may connect back to, to chapter three, to chapter three mm-hmm. that, that the women he's talking about, at least in part, could be these widows mm-hmm. who are older, who uh, are, you know, they're able to devote more of their attention to the church, to teaching the younger women, things like that. Mm-hmm. And so in my mind, that may be part of what Paul's addressing here. And, uh, and then Paul goes on to talk about elders again right and you know especially those who direct the affairs of the church uh, who work in preach, preaching and teaching so um, I, I think that 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 part there making that tie in with with chapter three really kind of opens it up to answering some of the questions well how would we apply this in our church mm-hmm. so right and we're seeing this instruction to timothy to share with the ephesian church that had some particular situations going on because we saw we, we know that there's other things that were happening in the corinthian church and and probably some other churches as well because in corinthians paul says this is what the instruction i give to all of the churches mm-hmm. so it seems to be a kind of common thing and and we again we have to speculate on culture at that time but there is this coming to Christ, this freedom in Christ. You have the Galatians 3 concept up that there's no male or female, that all are, all are saved equally, all are saved in the same way, all mm-hmm. come into relationship with Christ in the same way. And so this newfound equality, which would have been foreign in many of the communities of the <clears throat> Roman Empire, all of a sudden really starts stirring things up about how things work interactively day by day and like within the meetings of the church. And so you have this stuff going on. And so you have these instructions that become specific to a situation or the kind of thing that's going on in a church, but it's not negating that there are women leaders. It's just saying we have to, because Paul does have a thing about keeping things decent and in order and mm-hmm. using phrasing from NIV and such. So for churches then, as we look at, well, so if this instruction about women, one, chapter two seems to be a little restrictive. They can't have authority over men, but then we're seeing, well, no, it's just dumb, kind of taking authority that's not theirs and dominating in a kind of a control way Mm -hmm. um and so we saw okay so we know that that has to be um dealt with in a church so that that doesn't isn't disrupting the fellowship but we still see then right at the heel of that besides the the kind of the allusion to genesis 3 is we move right into a discussion about this is leaders because as in titus 1 paul says you got to do this so that the church can function well. You got to have mm-hmm. leaders. So he creates, he portrays this leadership structure, which I'm guessing Timothy had some fair idea about already. Yeah. But he's defining it a little bit more to be able to apply it in that situation. And so, again, we're not, we're simply saying that there are these groups of leaders in Timothy. They're called overseers or some type of watching over the whole thing, guiding the whole thing. You have the deacons who that word basically means a servant of some type and then you have the women and so because they're not giving given a title per se like they're not 
you know, because it doesn't say deaconesses, although that word is used about Phoebe in Romans 16, it still is just the women. And so we're left with the women kind of leaders, which again, I don't know, gives us a, a fluid sense of that there obviously were women leaders. We don't get their quote title in this passage, but they're definitely there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so in churches today, there are churches that are going to say, well, no, we still, our culture is we're not going to have women leaders, at least leading. And then they have to really define that out. And churches do sometimes get from an outside view, a person that's not in the center of that fellowship, they may go, how, how do they, how do they define this? When, because I remember in college, Bible college, when does a boy become a man so that mm. a woman can no longer teach him? Yeah. Well, that sounds like a very obvious question, but it is, you know, so what? We go with the law of the United States where now pretty much a person is an adult at 18, so that's when he's a man. Well, there's plenty of 18-year-old boys. They're still in high school. And so do they have to get out of the Sunday school class that this woman is teaching when they turn on their 18th birthday? Yeah. I, there's probably churches that do that. Um, but in my mind, I I have had the privilege of serving and being a part of churches that have um, slowly made space for women to be identified as leaders and to celebrate that and to acknowledge it and to not leave them as unofficial leaders, but actually then give them an equality, which is the the First Timothy three passage. They're in equal standing with other leaders in the church. To me, that's enough instruction. We don't have to have a lot of titles thrown out there about it. It's just that men and women led together in a responsible mm -hmm. and orderly way, which is what a lot of that guideline was about. Yeah. So other thoughts about how this can be, how this impacts the life of churches, or maybe even the life of an individual believer who is in a church that has women leadership or in a church that does not allow women leadership. Do we have any thoughts about that? For me, I think people just need to understand, or I hope hope they understand that they need to be free to follow their calling. Okay. So, yes. um, you know, whatever you feel God is doing, it's not up to a man or even, uh, an eldership to, uh, to squelch that. But, you know, if, if the person is rough around the edges or whatever, you know, to encourage them, find ways to train them, bring them mm -hmm. up, uh, you know, help help them develop their gift. You know, there are lots of women out there who are excellent public speakers, um, but some of them might suffer from stage fright. So you have mm -hmm. to walk them through, uh, you know, how do I how do I get over that so that I can really experience my gift? And I just think the church, as with with anything needs to be supportive of the gifts that they have it i mean i think of one of the big criticisms especially of of conservative churches is that they often are not um, they often don't act like they're supportive of the fine arts mm -hmm. and so we we think oh somebody's doing a dance routine to god and that, to, to some of us that, uh, you know, to some that were raised in conservative churches, that might be foreign because they, they've they seen the dancing portrayed in a negative light in some theologies and right. some, mm -hmm. yeah. some churches. And so, uh, or just artwork in general, visual arts or whatever. And I think the same goes with, with leadership that, uh, 
if you've got that gift, don't be afraid to use it, first of all, mm-hmm. because if the world is is paying you well to use that gift, uh, I, I think certainly the church should take advantage of that. Right. And as we see, that was happening in the New Testament church and the prohibitions of, of restricting women's, apparently women's leadership or women's exercise of gifts are specific to situations. But the, back, the way they were doing it, the way they were doing it, um, the impact that it had on that immediate short-term cultural situation or the, the culture of that church. Um, but I, I, I do think the powerful thought is the Holy Spirit does gift both men and women. I, I can't remember the author, but I read recently about just kind of this observation that, um, that it's not that we allow women to be leaders. We should just recognize that some leaders are women. Mm-hmm. And let, just if they are a leader, then let's acknowledge that. Let's celebrate it and let's empower that leadership you know we kind of get hung up on titles and all that kind of stuff i've personally been one that has been uh, i'm not comfortable with the uh, the inconsistency of a woman doing a certain role in a church and having a different kind of title than a male who is doing the same role but they've got this title of at least honor or prestige or at least recognition Mm -hmm. whether it's elder whether it's pastor that to me that's disingenuous in our culture around us. Our non-Christian culture around us looks at it as, well, what is the problem here? Mm-hmm. And when we know that the New Testament women were, there were there are leaders who are women. That's just all there is to it. Yep. So if a church is facing that in a leadership level, they could just study it more. We could put more of those references on like my blog or your blog. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if a person is in a church that doesn't, uh, have the level of women leadership that they think is appropriate. Maybe they stay and be an influencer, or maybe they decide that they're going to have to find a different fellowship to be in part of. I, mean, I wouldn't recommend that. People have to figure that out for themselves. But I just know that some of this information is pretty detailed. And so I know that people know that they can go to, to uh, my blog, which is just tonykafka.com. And I know that you have a blog as well, Scott, that some of this information is on. And so if you would just go ahead and just share that, people can find you. Yeah, it's sundaymorninggreekblog.wordpress.com. Got about 100 blog posts there on various subjects. Uh, It is actually born out of reading through the Greek New Testament uh, two years in a row and uh, talking about sharing the findings that I made while doing that. All right. So a variety of subjects. So yes. Appreciate you taking the time uh, with us on this podcast. Um, I appreciate you just personally as a friend. But I also know that this is an area that, because of variations in translations and variations in interpretations, this can be a very distressful issue for people. And so I would just encourage people to just process this. If you've got more questions, you can always email me at nogod at tonykafka.com, which is K-N-O-W at T-O-N-Y-K-A-F-K-A.com. And I can either pass emails on to Scott or Scott, you, I don't know if you want to share e- your email or not, or I can just pass along questions to you. If you want to ask me a question, you can send it to scott underscore stocking at yahoo.com. All right. Scott, thanks for being here with us. Yeah, thanks. Thank you very much. God bless.